Hello and welcome to another episode of the How You Say It podcast with myself, Graham Colgower. On this episode, I have an absolute cracker for you. Uh, a few weeks ago, I reached out to Richard Park, who originally comes from Kirkcaldy, similar to myself, and I reached out to Richard to see if he would be interested in coming on. Thankfully, uh, for everybody who will be listening to this, he was more than happy to discuss his experiences and go through some of his life stories from an incredible career in radio and television broadcasting and as well as music. Richard's a fascinating character for anybody who maybe doesn't know who he is. He uh, he's, he's, he's better known for his TV appearances in Fame Academy, which is a popular television show in the early 2000s. But some of the work that Richard's done in radio broadcasting is quite remarkable. It starts out from a very humble beginning uh, on on a on a boat off the coast of off the west coast of Scotland in Troon, and makes his way all the way to Radio One, and of course was influential in starting Radio Clyde up in Scotland, commercial radio, and of course his work in music and sport is something that has uh, has made me very interested and wanted to catch up with him. So a big thanks to to Richard for giving us the time and I'm sure you'll agree when you hear some of his stories and, and the way he tells them and, and some of the lessons that we can take from someone like Richard Park, it's fantastic. The The podcast is doing really, really well. I'm really pleased at some of the guests and we've got lots more guests coming up on the on the podcast so if you if you could please just keep giving me a like and subscribe and uh, keep listening on and if you do have any feedback or if you have uh, anybody that you would like to hear me interview and talk to about communication then please feel free to let me know drop me a message on social media you'll get me on twitter uh, at graham 21 colgower um and you'll find me on linkedin as well graham colgower it, it it really is a great pleasure to be able to do these these podcasts and speak to these people. And if there's anybody that you think that would be beneficial to speak to, then then I'd be I'd love to hear it. But thanks you thank you to everybody who's been listening so far. And as I say, I'm going to try and keep these interviews coming as as quick and as best as possible for you um, because it's uh, it's something that I'm enjoying very much. So, so and and I'm enjoying seeing the the listening figures and also hearing some of the feedback. So yes, please give us a like, give us a share, give us a five stars rating on uh, on your podcast provider or <clears throat> or subscribe and, and pass it on to people because the more people that listen means the more traction I can get the more traction I can get means maybe some of the high the, the, the high profile uh, interviewees that I can get but uh, when it comes to high profile interviews none come as big as, as Richard Park as I say a career in radio broadcasting that's taken them all the way to to at one point uh, being the director of global radio who are the biggest radio um, commercial radio providers effectively in Europe so uh, a massive massive name and as I say comes from Kirkcaldy so it was it was nice for Richard to to reach out uh, and get back to me um, and give me the time to to record this podcast so here is Richard Park. I'm joined with Richard Park a man who has been involved in broadcasting for nearly 60 years. Richard how are you? Well, I'm still going, believe it or not, after that length of time, it's quite uh, quite special there. It's incredible. I mean, 1966, you say that uh, you started out broadcasting off the west coast of Scotland in Troon on a boat for pirate radio. Yes. Well, I took a big gamble, actually, because I left my job um, at the Fife News series of newspapers, uh, which at that time were run out of Cooper in Fife. And... Uh, I, I managed. I went to Glasgow for an audition, actually, uh, and believe it or not, I got I got the gig. Wow! Which really, I was surprised at. So I told my parents I was going to take it, and actually, they were they were pretty supportive, slightly concerned that I had uh, veered so early in life from one career to another. 
But I duly turned up on the docks at Troon that <laughs> September morning in 1966. It was windy, as it can be there, as we know, on the Ayrshire coast. And the tender that took us the five miles out to the main boat couldn't get out of the harbour. The waves were so <laughs> big, it was a small fishing boat. So we turned back to shore. I went back to my sister's house in Edinburgh, actually, for the night, and then came back to Troon the following day, and I got on the boat. And shortly after that, I made my first broadcast, which was reading the news at six o'clock in the morning. Wow. Wow. I mean, going, going a little super, bit. Super glamorous. And then my first music show was at night. Yeah. And I, I thought I wouldn't last, actually, because I my the first record I ever played was Neil Diamond, Cherry, Cherry. And I said, oh, that's a hell of a good record. And in my mind, I thought, oh, God, what have I just said? Have I sworn? You yeah, know? of course, the changes there. I mean, going, going back just a little bit then, Richard, when you're setting out as a youngster, was broadcasting and being involved in, in radio journalism, was that an ambition of yours? Was it something you studied? Was it something that you'd had a pathway for? Or did it all just kind of come together? I No, I, I left school uh, when I was 16 years of age. Um, I, I had never really settled into education. I didn't find it, you know, stimulated me. I wanted to be uh, working. In those days, I, I, I'd started off in the newspaper because that was the avenue that opened up for me. Mm -hmm. But as soon as I heard some of the pirate radio ships, you know, Radio Caroline, Radio Scotland, I knew that I, I wanted to be a broadcaster. I used to love listening to football commentaries. And always from a very early age, I was crazy for music. We always had music in our house. Mm -hmm. My mom and dad were very, very keen on music. They had all the latest records of the sort of middle 50s. I mean, we're talking the sort of start of Elvis and that type of musical period. Uh, and, and I absolutely loved it. And as we came into the 60s and the, the period of the Beatles and the Stones and all that, I mean, it, it just, it, it blew me away. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so that, that was... That was really my, you know, my, I don't think there was ever any doubt. I, did, I only know this retrospectively. I didn't know at the time that I could make a career out of this. Wow. The one thing I didn't know was I couldn't sing, so I wouldn't be doing that, you know. <laughs> and I mean, the, the only DJing done in those days was by sort of David Jacobs type individuals. Yeah. Know? So I mean, when, you're on, when you're on that boat going out to spend all this time on this pirate radio ship or boat out there on the west coast of Scotland, are you thinking this is a hobby? Are you thinking that this is a stepping stone? Or do you just think, I'm just going to see where this takes me and, and, and enjoy the enjoy the journey? Yes, that was what I thought. I thought, I'll see where this takes me. Um, I will enjoy the journey. And then my first night on the boat, I thought, it's going to be difficult to enjoy this journey, uh, this journey because um, there's a force eight out here. The ship <laughs> is lurching from side to side. My, I didn't know anything about seasickness. You know, I'd cross the channel and things, but... Oh, I, I I didn't feel so great. I managed. Lots of people didn't manage, like Stuart Henry, the old Scottish DJ. He, wow. he only had one week on the boat, couldn't do it. But I, I eventually got through it, you know. But I would broadcast sometimes with a bucket by my side. And, <laughs> well, I mean, really, when I think yeah. of it now, I could only do that. You could only do that, I think, when you're really sort of 18, 19, 20, um, as, as I was. Otherwise, I think, you know, Fear would creep in. Yeah. I never had any fear. I used to stand on the deck and the waves were coming over me. I mean, honestly, I I can give you descriptions and you would find it hard to believe. We didn't realize we're taking our life in our hands, but wow. I mean, around the country, other pirate ships were sinking. The Radio Scotland boat called the Comet was an old light ship. Right. And it had a sister light ship, which was based off Donaghadee, off uh, the Irish coast outside Belfast Harbour. Um, 
after about a few months, really, uh, Scotland moved to the Belfast Lock area. It only stayed there a short time and because it was going to move around to St Andrews. So during that period, there was a gigantic storm a couple of days after we left the area and it sunk the sister ship. Wow. So, I mean, I'll tell you. I didn't realize that at the time, but you are, you are, you were taking your life in your hands. And that goes for everybody who'd ever been on one of those boats, you know? That's incredible. I'll tell you what, the, the storms out there, you know, the old shipping forecast. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You'd know about that. Yeah. Of course, you'd hear the word storm force 10 Malin, your heart would sink. <laughs> that was the seafaring area that, uh, yeah. that we, but all the meanwhile, you know, you go back and you, you know, you you play your records, you do your show, the tender boat, if it could manage, would get out most days. And, and I mean, in those days, there were masses of letters from listeners coming in, either requesting songs, wanting to ask you questions. Wow. I mean, it, it actually uh, was much more energetic than possibly that just made it sound, you know. That's incredible. I mean, I had three shows a day. I, I was lunchtime, uh, drive time, and uh, late evening. Wow. Wow. So you know, when you look at it now to take from that point there, you've gone to then BBC Radio, uh, Radio yeah. One, uh, Radio yeah. One Club. You've then become, well, you were director of broadcasting at Global Radio. You're now the programming advisor at Global Radio. So that's Europe's yeah. Europe's largest radio company. Yes. Well, uh, I set that up with uh, a guy called Ashley Tabor. Right. Who is the sort of actual founder, and I would call myself the the co-pilot on that one wow. but it was something we had put together over a number of years that finally came to fruition when we were able to able to buy heart and lbc uh in in 2007 but of course i had been program director of, of capital the london radio station and the group between 1987 and 2000 then whilst running my own company i was also doing the program director work for magic radio which we got to number one from number 10 in London, something we're very proud of. Yeah. And of course, I was on uh, Radio Clyde as their um, head of music and entertainment between 1974 and 1986. Wow. So, I mean, from where I've was... always been professionally employed. And next year, I'll have been uh, getting a pay packet every week of my life for 60 years. Wow, there you go. I mean, <laughs> I mean, for somebody like you say, you left school, you didn't have any qualification. No, in so, no. I mean, three shows a day on a boat that's tilting side to side in the middle of the in the middle of a stormy weather would probably give you a, a lesson in itself on broadcasting. But where was the next step after that? Then, what once you did you get picked up? Did somebody hear you? Was it a case of trying to get you onto mainstream commercial radio at that point? Then. Uh, well, I, I think I think what happened is after the uh, Marina Fences law came in and Pirate Radio was outlawed, I and they launched Radio One and they were looking around the country and they did look at people who'd been on pirate stations and hired quite a few, and I got taken on to do what I call odds and end shows, Radio mm -hmm. One clubs, doing interviews. There used to be a music review show uh, called Roscoe's Round Table. I was a regular guest on that, the Scottish guest. And that allowed me to get some work on what is now BBC Scotland, but it was the home service then. And then um, at the start of 1972, the late Jimmy Gordon, Lord Gordon, was putting together Radio Clyde. And uh, I was one of the people that he asked, you know, would I be in the group with the beauty doing programmes? So for the sort of next six or seven months, I was um, uh, just building the um, the shape of the business with him. Yeah. 
And, and then in 1973, so we won won the award, but it took a year to get studios in Glasgow mm-hmm. and then him appoint senior people, because obviously I was going to be a DJ, not a broadcast manager at that time. And so in 1973, we became the third commercial station in the UK behind LBC and Capital to start wow. broadcasting. And I was on on the opening night of Radio Clyde. And I did a double header that night. I was booked as the DJ chat along guy. And I had this banjo player who was going to come down the studio later on, do a bit of chatting. He became quite famous. His name was Billy Connolly. Wow. So he was on, so he was on with you on the opening night of Radio Clyde. Yeah. Wow. He he had been a friend of mine because I had done Radio One Clubs and things with him and Jerry Rafferty as the humble bums. And I'd known him because I knew all the, the team from the Great yeah. Five Roadshow uh, as well. And and yeah, he and I did some great programs or programs that I really enjoyed. Other people can judge if they were great or not. <laughs> I mean, I remember going with them to the Scotland England Football International of 1974 when Scotland won, and we walked from Anderson Cross all the way out to Hamden. And honestly, I I could tell that he was going to be a star. Really, this is before actual stardom came. Everybody knew who he was. It was Connolly. It was the big yin. It was uh, you know, but it wasn't even Welly Boots at that time. I don't think. I don't think that the sort of Three men from Carntine bit of his life had come in. Wow, what, what a guy what, and what a good friend, you know. Yeah, and every cool. time I've seen him in my life, our friend, we just pick up like it was yesterday. Because I used to meet him in in Los Angeles quite a lot. Wow, because I used to uh, go over there, make jingles for Pepsi and for radio stations and all sorts of things. That's just incredible. Yeah, but that's one of the bonuses you get the people you meet on the way. Of course, and 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 as well as music, it wasn't just music that was your passion, as you'd mentioned earlier on, football and sport and things mm-hmm. like that. And you had a yeah. massive massive input in how even to this day we listen to sport and we listen to sport on the radio football phone-ins and things like that yeah i mean it's it's uh it's funny how some of the people that i worked with in the early days are some of the biggest sporting names now i mean if you think of ali mccoy's yeah i knew him as a 16 year old he used to come into my office and radio clients who got any records i could take and he used to <laughs> walk through my record collection you know and even on my 70th birthday, he sent me a message on film. I mean, all the people that I, I, I have worked with were always very kind, and I, I absolutely loved it. I was Bobby Moore's last employer, because obviously I, I set up a sports show in London that yeah. followed the sports show that I'd set up for Radio Clyde called Super Scoreboard, which runs to this day yeah. on a very similar format. But it was started by uh, myself, a guy called Paul Cooney, who produced it and then presented it in later years. And the James Sanderson, a wonderful broadcaster, Jimmy Sanderson, and a few other people over the years, Jerry McNee and uh, people that you would come to know. And, and, and then down in London, I replicated that with uh, Jonathan Pierce, who's been on lots of channels, Steve yeah. Wilson. I mean, literally almost every broadcaster that you hear came through either that, that Clyde output or the, uh, or the output for Capital Gold Sport, which wow. ran until 2002. Um, when the Premier League prices went went crazy and Firefly just bought everything, BBC bought everything wow. out. I mean, I'm curious about the innovation side of it. I mean, it's you're at a time where it, it, there's a lot of new things happening and, and there's experimentation with, you, you know, what can we do in broadcasting? What can we do with commercialization of broadcasting and things like that? How difficult was it for you to, to be such a leader in these sort of innovations? In broadcasting you know, and radio work. The funny thing is, the funny thing is, I never thought about them as innovations. When I look back now, they are innovations, and innovations is a, is a word for this century. In the previous century, it didn't work like that. 
I had to take Jimmy Gordon, Lord Gordon, who was a great Celtic supporter, and he made the Celtic film. He was lucky enough to make the history of Celtic film in season 66, 67, wow. when Celtic won everything. But yeah. at the start of that season, they didn't know they were going to win everything from you yeah. know the Glasgow Cup to the European Cup. Yeah. Uh, and um, he'd sort of gone off football a bit. He hadn't been a business partner of Jock Steen's, but Celtic were playing in the European Cup. And I said, we've got to get out and broadcast this from from Celtic Park, and you know all the people, Jimmy. You know, and they'll go, well, well, yes, yes, I do. I said, okay, well, get us in, and we'll do reports from the ground. I mean, nobody was doing that in yeah. 1974, I can assure you. And so we went out to the ground, and we had this radio car, right? And in order to make the broadcast, you had to get a gigantic mask up. So I brought an engineer along, but I had to give him a lot of help. We got the mask up. I did a bit of broadcasting. Uh, we came at the end of the match out of the ground. I said, right, I'm going to broadcast from here. And Jimmy Gordon said, no, no, we'll never get out because of the crowds. I mean, in those days, before the stadium was yeah, really yeah, worked, yeah. you had about 80,000 in there. Yeah. Getting out of uh, the parkhead district of Glasgow wasn't, wasn't that easy. <laughs> Anyhow, so I said, we've got to get the mask down. And Jimmy threw it. And I said, just keep on driving. So we drove out of Celtic Park around the corner where there was a bridge and the aerial hit the, the mast hit the top of the bridge. <laughs> yeah, so that was my first radio car story. Wow! Um, but that that was an innovation in itself, taking a radio car to the ground, doing that sort of feature, and then developing that whole show. And it it, it didn't take it, the vision was there, but it took years to actually get it to be you know something that I thought this is really top quality. Yeah, you know? and, and and did I mean what? Nineteen eighty before we really achieved that, we were doing commentaries in the. You know, cup finals and things in the in the seventies, but because BBC Radio Scotland had bought a lot of it, I, they wanted to keep us back. They had a distant, distant vibe that we could pull people. Well, by the time we got to nineteen eighty one, we had more people listening on a Saturday afternoon to our show than were listening to our breakfast show on play. Wow, so it was, it was massive. And your shows, so your shows were commentary, or were they were they collective of of com The opening and... series was Bob Crampsey and I and reporters around the ground. But I, I thought that that's where you know, my vision ahead was, no, no, we need to be doing a commentary and then doing a phone-in. So we do a, a first hour of the show where we warm up, we go around the grounds. Because in those days, everybody played on a Saturday. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And yeah. then we would do a live game at three o'clock and be in the Glasgow station. It was going to be Celtic or Rangers, whichever one was away from home, because the owners of the two football clubs, Desmond White and the Kellys at Celtic and... It was Willie Waddle at that time at Rangers. They didn't want live commentaries of their home games. They thought it would affect the gate. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, so we, we, we did their, their away games, and, and that just built from that point yeah. to something absolutely massive. And that, that format was then adopted everywhere else. Because don't forget, there was no five lives, talks, any of those sort of things in those days. Yeah. All the shows now are copies of what we set up. And most of, most of the people in the business, are, are I find, are aware of that. I, I, Despite the fact I haven't run a sports channel in the last 10 or 12 years, I mean, I know everybody and everybody knows how we got to where we are today in, in this country. I mean, the phone-in was something I heard. I was driving between New York and Washington and I heard an American football phone-in. And that's where I got the idea for having yeah. Jimmy Sanderson on with us. We, we dabbled with an odd Sunday morning thing on Clyde, but to do it like every time there was a game, yeah. we would do the phone-in afterwards. And I mean, Jimmy Sanderson was just so brilliant at it. It was and even even wow. to this day, I mean that that the content that you get now. You mentioned about Radio Five Live, and you, you hear. I mean, every now and then on Twitter or anything like that, there's there's a pop up of somebody going viral of a of a comedy moment or a serious poignant point or something like that that's been said on one of the main 
main sort of football phone in shows. So I mean, for yourselves to manage that at the time when technology wasn't what it is today, you already mentioned oh, about driving around with aerials out of cars and having to avoid low bridges and things like that. But I mean, how did you manage getting there? Well, that's, the, that's the, proper innovation, Graham. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, ask the question. Yeah, but it's it's, it's just that but it fascinates me about now. It's it's even difficult to manage a phone in on a, in a in a radio station that's going out to potentially millions of listeners. So back then, what was the process? Was it just a case of a number of phone lines that were set up, and the the producer would then send them through to the studio? Yeah, pretty pretty much similar to the you know no real further developments to that because. Yeah. Um, apart from the fact that everybody's phoning on a mobile phone, whereas they had to be from a landline, so yeah. they couldn't phone their cars or, or whatever in 1979. But uh, yeah, that, that process was still there. There was a phone operator, cleared the calls. You know, he was briefed by myself, the sort of call we're looking for. Yeah. Know? But I mean, it wasn't long before everybody knew exactly what the show was about. And to be honest with you, whichever one of Celtic Rangers is having a hard time, their fans would call in more than than fans who were winners. Yeah. And when you're winning, you know, no no problem. When you're losing, well, you know, that's incredible. Heartbreak, heartbreak. You yeah. Know? yeah. I've always been a passionate football man. I mean, all my life. So none of this ever felt like work. That's the funny thing, isn't it? Wow. It no, I was very lucky because yeah. if I wasn't doing that, I was playing records for a living, and neither of those things felt like work. When I finally moved into these management positions, that felt like work. I had to had to get into those jobs to to realize you know what was work and what was sheer passionate enjoyment. Yeah. You know? So on the management side, then when you move in, I mean, like you say, sitting behind a microphone and either playing records or talking about football, sport, or anything like that, it 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 comes so naturally to you if you enjoy that and that's your thing. When you're managing, how hard is it then? To, to find the right DJ or presenter or host of the right show, set the show up, get it out there and get people listening to it and, and finding out the, even just like when the best time of the day to play those particular shows are. Yeah, I mean, all, all this you have to work out. And I just developed a game plan because I was behind the microphone all my days. So I, I, could, I could see on channels what people liked and what they didn't like. I looked at audience figures and understood them fairly quickly, where, where you would put on what particular level of content. And I, I do think you need special people to create special shows, like mm -hmm. the, the, the phone-in host chap on Clyde. He, he was a special person. When he died in 1986, um, we lost something that I haven't heard. I couldn't name you anybody doing a phone-in in this country that's up, up to this level. Yeah. And had his level of experience because, I mean, he had traveled with the old firm in Scotland for many, many years. I mean, he went back to the, the 50s and so on, mm -hmm. you know, and was a journalist for the Express and the Mirror, and, you know, back in the great days of uh, of those newspapers. So, I mean, I, I, I always take with me a vision of where I want to get to and then hire the people that could take us there. Yeah. And I mean, I've been very proud of my my staffs all the time. I've had some some wonderful people, you know, yeah. not necessarily the ones that are household names, but people who produced the programs. There's a guy in London called Pete Simmons, who's still at Global now, actually. And he put together the Capital Goals Sport on a daily basis for me. Because obviously, as as running all these radio stations, I couldn't be on the ground as much as I wanted to. Of course. I did a team meeting on the Friday, but I, but I couldn't do the rest of it, unfortunately. My initial plan was I was going to commentate the game. So when I went down to London, and I'd already sold my boss, who was Lord Attenborough, Richard Attenborough, wow. director of 
Chelsea, football mad. So when I told them that when we were splitting our frequencies from AM to FM, that we do um, football on the AM, he was very supportive, massive Chelsea supporter. Yeah. If we're having a board meeting at the same time as Chelsea were playing, he would stop the board meeting. <laughs> he really was a, a wonderful man, yeah. just as a person away away from the movie things. Wow. And then a lot of the people who are directing the program still on Sky were people that I hired into Capital yeah. to do the to do the uh Capital Gold Sport Radio type of thing. And then we spread it all around the country. We bought, you know, we bought Century in Manchester and bought Manchester United in Manchester City. So yeah. I, I had a really good time during that period going and meeting our broadcasters yeah. in other places around the country. Birmingham, we had a couple of terrifically uh, talented presenters there as well. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it it uh it lit my candle, no question. As time started to move by then, Richard, you know, the more more commercial companies were coming out, more people were vying for the rights for sport or even just to play music and things like that. How did you keep yourself ahead of the game? How did you keep yourself? What was the sort of mantra that you had that would keep yourself in front of the other people that were maybe chasing to try and do the same thing and catch up with what you'd already started? Well, I, I think I've always had an ear for what I would, you know, what historically we would just call pop music. So I, I just, I knew a good one from a bad one. I guess I'd worked in a lot of clubs and things myself, DJing. So I could see what it was that worked for people. And I always felt that the thing that worked best for the mainstream, which is what stations like Clyde and Capital are, what works best for them is just good musical tunes, yeah. you know, which we still have to this day, but there is a dearth of them now. I mean, Harry Styles, you know, as it was, that would be a good pop tune. That could yeah. have been a hit any time in the last 60 years. But, I mean, coming up through the 60s, 70s, and 80s, I mean, the, the music was so good. A lot of it spoke for itself. I was lucky enough to get to know the artists quite well. And, and I think I could spot which were the, the talented ones. I was very friendly. Used to do quite a bit of work with the late George Michael. Mm. And then as I was building into to getting my own record label, I started trying to discover people. And I, I had one or two successes. Yeah, Craig David, who's mm -hmm. developed a long career, came to me as a 16-year-old to play me, uh, fill me in, walking away, seven days. And I mean, these songs have lasted. Yeah, yeah. Still doing those around the country now and filling stadiums from, well, from Glasgow to London to New York. And, you know, my proudest moment was when his record got to number one in London and in New York on wow. the same day and yeah. went across and played Central Park. And, and I'd managed to pick him up when nobody else signed him. So, you know, moments like that have given me great pleasure. I mean, I, there's no way you can sort of say how it's done, but when it when you pick it out and it works, it is an exceptional feeling. Do you know Do you know instantly if you meet somebody or you come across an artist or even a, a, a potential presenter or host of a show or, or, or a DJ or something, how quickly can you tune in to somebody and go, I think you've got something and I'm, I'm willing to take a chance on you? Because you're right, the, the success that you've had there with Craig David, but... There's so many people out there that have maybe there'll be how many people passed up the opportunity to take on Craig David. So what was it that you saw? Oh, yeah. that, 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 that that was that my first didn't... question to him. I said, I when he played me the tape, I said, "Is this you?" Thinking, yeah, maybe it isn't. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that is me. Did you write that? Yes. And you haven't been signed by any other big companies. No. Have they looked at you? Yes. Warner Brothers looked at me. Universal but nobody's offered me a deal. I got our lawyer straight through. He was two offices uh, down from me uh, on the top floor in Leicester Square. I said, we, we've got to do a heads of agreement with this guy now. 
Wow. And his agent was a guy in a Celtic, in a, sorry, Chelsea tracksuit, actually. <laughs> and uh, we did the deal there and then, and he was he was in the squad. Yeah, wow. I mean, but I, I, as regards other talent, um, I think when you're running certain musical channels, you know what music you need to put on them, and you know what people you need to play them. Yeah. And I mean, I've been very lucky to work with people when they were at the height of their game. I mean, Chris Tarrant, when he was doing his Capital Breakfast show in London, that was brilliant. I don't think I've heard many a better show anywhere in the world. Yeah. But you had to be in London to hear it, and it was slightly London-esque. Uh, and then I, I managed to develop people like Pete Tong, who've gone on to have just phenomenal careers. Yeah. I mean, Chris Tarrant, I mean, to, how much leeway did you have to give these guys to manage them? Because, uh, you know, the radio DJ breakfast dj kind of picture of somebody they've got they've got all the information that they need they've got the, the world at their fingertips basically how how hard is it to keep somebody like that in check but at the same time give them the creative license that they need to make brilliant radio uh it's like having lionel messi playing football you don't really need to tell them yeah you know they could do it. They'll have better days than other days, and some days they need an arm around them, and other days they definitely don't. They're they're all off on their own train. But you only had to watch his career take off. Every television channel wanted to get him. He winded up. He wound up hosting. You know, who wants to be a millionaire? Which was like the '90s biggest television show. Uh, and you could see that he had a latent talent. But the television shows were not as good as that radio show. That radio show was absolutely sublime. I mean. When I say everybody listened to it, they did. I mean, you know, I come back to Scotland and they, they didn't really know about it because, um, it, well, it was more, you know, the Clyde the Fourth or whatever, or Radio One or something of that sort. But an outstanding show and a massive audience. Yeah. It was unbelievable. So, I mean, I, I hope that I, I um, create the situation whereby these people can be at their absolute best. That's really what I do with people who've, who've got the talent, who are in the game, right? They don't need me to tell them you'll speed up, slow down, you know? They they come and look for your opinion after a while anyway. Yeah. So he would always come for a cup of tea and, you know, what do you think? That sort of stuff. Because they want to stay on top of their game. Of course. You know, and that that became very true. Even when I was doing news and sports stations, like uh, I turned LBC into this much more uh, news and talk orientated station, yeah. but I had to work very closely with all the presenters there because they had to get used to that kind of um, style that I think works and it has worked for that station as well. Absolutely. I mean, you fast forward and you look at Radio X now and you see people like Chris Moyles, who's just a household name as Radio 1 DJs, holds a record for the longest ever Radio 1 breakfast host and all that. How 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 hard is it to try and get someone like that into, into your radio station so you well, can he, have that name? He started with me. He started on Capital. Right. He went from Capital to Radio 1, wow. having done as a local radio somewhere in Yorkshire. We gave him shows, and that was his shop window when Capital was absolutely at its height, you know, listened to by everybody. And yeah. so he got picked up. And then the day that he'd been told he was leaving Radio 1, uh, I happened to, I lived about half an hour from Radio 1 studios and about 45 minutes from Capitals. So I would walk to work every day from, from my house in uh, Primrose Hill. And he was standing outside the studio, wow. smoking cigarette. Yeah. And and I said, is everything okay? Oh, I'm not, I'm not sure. He said, you know. And then the next time I met him was when I offered him the breakfast show on Radio X. Wow. So there you go. You see what what goes around comes around. I've never closed the door on people I work with who chose to go with, uh, uh, to the BBC instead of us. 
because because there was a moment when for them they thought it was the right thing to do. But you know, they've all come back in the end, isn't it? Isn't it funny? And we've got him. I've got Toby Tarrant, who's yeah. Chris Tarrant's son on Radio X, and uh, and I started him. We started him originally on Capital, right. but realized that his type of act would be better on Radio X and just just banging out the hits. And uh, Johnny Vaughan's on there as yeah. well, doing you know, the best broadcasting of his life. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just household names, and that's just in one of the stations that, that Global Radio have. You go through it, and there'll be plenty of people, LBC, yeah, that are listening to talks. <laughs> How hard was it yeah. making the change from LBC then? Because you mentioned turning it from what it was to what it is now, and obviously it's been a huge success. But how difficult is that to come in and make these changes when you've got an audience who are maybe used to hearing things a certain way? You've also got presenters and, and DJs that are used to presenting in a certain way, and you've come in here with an idea that's going to change it. How difficult was that to navigate through? Well, luckily enough, by that time, my career is, is long and deep, and people do know the way I operate through through a variety of stations. So when I gather the presenters around an LBC and tell them what the mission is, uh, the ones that want to take part in that mission really get on board uh, and ask a lot of questions, main, mainly in a more private setting than a team meeting. Mm -hmm. um, and and gradually we we develop from a sort of lightweight, fluffy, tub of show busy type radio station into hard news. I mean, you know, if we go back to LBC 15 years ago, no self-respecting politician would have entered the premises. Nowadays, we have to fight them off, you know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, in, in many ways, we, um, you know, I've ridden alongside the ups and downs of British politics in the last in the last 15 years. So, I mean, that does require coaching and direction, but it also requires me to hire somebody good to do it every day, mm. you know. And uh, that I I knew I did when I hired a guy called James Rio, mm -hmm. uh, who became you know my second guy in Capital. Uh, and when I went into to part retire, it was obvious that he could come right in behind me and and uh, take over some of the harder day to day tasks, which he's which he's done brilliantly. That I think is actually one of the things I've done best is the team that that I was working with every day that I'd hired and built in is still there now. Yeah. So as their advisor, I can come and sit down with them and the owner and just tell them here's what we need to do, and they're all yeah, that's cool. That's what that's what we want to do. So so that that was how that was done. That that was how that was achieved. But actually, I think one of my better achievements lately was hiring Roman Kemp, who's gone from nowhere, never even wanted to be a DJ. Wow. He's football crazy as well. And that was he wanted to be sort of I, I'm not quite sure what he wanted to be, but um I've turned him into now a huge DJ and and uh must have on virtually every television show in the country, yeah. you know. That's from cool. from a job now. When I got introduced to him, my uh, son, Jonathan, was working for LBC and he was doing football reports during the 2014 World Cup. Mm -hmm. And actually he said to me, Dad, you should meet this guy because he seems to be interested in music and he loves his football and all this sort of stuff. I said, well, tell him, you know, get him to come up to the office. And so he did. And, you know, the rest in his career is history. He has rocketed. Wow. So, going, you know? going back to when you were first starting out and you're making that transition from you know, presenting and hosting to managing. Did it ever yeah. become difficult when you were in a management position not to just get behind the wheel again and try and do it yourself? How hard is it to take a step back and allow somebody to have their journey and let them find their own way of making it so that you're not imparting too much on them? Well, I, I think the way the way it happened in Clyde, I was still on the air. So I was still doing a daily show, yeah. a football show, and I think a weekend show as well, still doing lots of shows as well as managing. Um, 
which most people don't really do. So I didn't find, I, I, I find the management thing not hard because I just love doing it so much. But I found the the work weight when I look back was huge. I, I mean, it's lucky I didn't go around the bend because yeah. I, you know, I, and I'd also be, you know, pursuing my own career, um, still presenting in clubs and all that sort of stuff. So I mean, I was busy twenty four hours, twenty four hours a day. Wow. I reckon a lot of the times I got back to the house two or three in the morning, I was up again at seven or eight. But that's because I loved it so much, but I don't think it probably did me that much good. And I don't think it helped every judgment. But because I was on this mission, I, I sort of drove myself forward. I didn't realize at that time that it would lead me to have to make a decision about would I go to London or would I continue doing this until somebody in Clyde, Lord Gordon, told me that uh, that, that was enough. Yeah. But I think I did 12 years there. And that's fine. I've got this thing, this sort of biblical thing about, you know, you have seven good years. And so, you know, yeah. if you want to do another seven, you have to know what you're going to do next. So I went in a broadcast in Clyde for seven years. Then I had another six where I broadcast and managed. Then I left to go to London, realized quickly, although I was going to do the football, there would be too much for me, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, and then I had seven years just working on the London operation. Then we started to buy in Dublin, Birmingham, so on. And, and I was dispatched by my board colleagues because I was on the board by then to go and sort of set all these places up. So I set up Capital's version of BRMB, our version of Century in Manchester and Newcastle and Leeds. And then I go down to everywhere from Exeter to Bournemouth. I mean, I didn't really want to, to do some of that as much as I wanted to do some of the things I did early on. But I mean, if you're in the job, you've got to tip up for the... Um, for the, for the dailies, yeah. you know. So I, I I I never really missed the broadcasting, but that was only because I never had time to think about it. <laughs> Not really. And then I also heard other people that I was bringing in. And I thought these guys are actually actually better than I am. If I'm yeah. if I'm really honest, you know. Did you mentioned... as regards to, as regards to music presenting? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned a blueprint. You mentioned having a blueprint for doing it. But I mean, you're you're talking about going in and setting up setting up radio stations locally that follow the same blueprint that you've got set up. What are the main challenges in that then for you? What did you find to be a real struggle sticking point? That was there was there usually the same issues, or did it vary different places that you went to, or was it was it kind of the same kind of problems? I think it's the same kind of problems. I mean, I think you have to have and, and you have to inherit in these cases the right people. Yeah. And if you haven't uh, inherited the right people, then you've got to go and find new people or you've got to instruct your managers in a particular region to find people who can do certain things, you know. Mm -hmm. And that was never easy, you yeah. know. But the amount of people who've gone on to have national broadcasting careers as commercial radio has developed nationally uh, means I think, well, you know, we did well enough. Yeah. We've got enough people over the line. I mean, the list of, of household names now is enormous. The, the list of um, uh, people currently in global is is enormous. Wow. So I, I, I think that, um, you know, if you can spot developing talent in a, in a station, they might not be doing one of the frontline shows and you bring them forward and they really develop, that's when you feel really good about it. Yeah, I mean, you look at the, the sort of the variation of types of shows as well with global, you know, you've got the sort of pop, 
culture, music. You've got, you've also got classic FM in there. You to, yes. to then political broad, political and news broadcasting through LBC. Then you've got the different types of music through uh, you know Heart Radio X and all that. How important was diversification for for the group for for you as well to make sure that you were covering all bases in that? Well, I mean, at, at the start, these stations were not just like Heart is now one national station. You know, they, they were 90, 90 local stations. Wow. We actually made into bigger brands because the way the world has gone, if you don't have a big brand in radio and in a technologically developing world, digital world, you could be left completely behind. You could have paid a lot of money for a business and it just doesn't work because you're not bringing it off on the ground. I mean, if you take Heart as an example, that has performed brilliantly, in, you know, including Scotland, absolutely everywhere. I'd say its greatest strength is where it started, which was in southern Britain, but it's, you know, worked its way up the country. And, you know, what is it now? 10 million. I mean, it has very nearly overtaken Radio 2 as the largest output in this country. And I, and it will do. It's just, it's only a matter of time. It's not if it's going to happen. Everyone. It is going to happen. And I think that's part of the reason they're in this panic mode of trying to get the older people like Ken Bruce moved on, mm -hmm. right? And try and get a few younger people, Vernon Kay, um, onto the airways. I, I, I'm not so sure that's the right thing to do, you know? Wow. What what drives you, Richard? You know, you're still going. What drives you? You can see the passion that you've got for it, but what what's kept you going through all that? You mentioned about the 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 the, the long hours and stuff like that, but what at the moment now, what's keeping you going to, to keep working? Well, you know, I mentioned long hours because other people tell me I did long hours. That that that's really because it never really felt like that to yeah. me. Um, what keeps me going now is a pride in what we've achieved and what we built in in the global thing. You know, yeah. and what we built first of all the capital radio thing um, of the eighties and nineties has merged into global radio, which you know, took it over in two thousand. Uh, seven eight so I, I i think i'm kept going by the fact that my mantra has been carried on that the um uh ashley Taylor who runs global worked for me in the 90s so he's bringing to bear um with his financial clout as well as his programming talent he's bringing to bear um everything that i sort of taught him was the right way to go back in the day and and uh, he would unashamedly tell you that that is true. So so that motivates me. Watching uh, my other managers do as well as most of them have done on the stations that you've mentioned motivates me. Watching the presenters doing well motivates me. Mm. See, I realized I would be a manager in Clyde when I realized I cared as much about other people's shows as I did about my own. I think in radio, that is unusual. Yeah. You go and you do your show. Are you worried about what comes on after you, Graham? Maybe not. Yeah. I, I don't know how. I mean, I had Bill Smith come on after me in Clyde and I'd always, you know, sort of say to him, don't play that. Don't. And I'm thinking, God, why am I doing that? <laughs> but that, and that was it. That's when I know, hang on. Yeah. I'd, I'd be a better manager. Wow. You know, so in, my, in the back of my mind, I. You've mentioned I, your mantra there, then. What, what is your main mantra that you've stuck by that's kept you going this, this length, then? Uh, it's, it's an absolute focus and the dedication and concentration on what you're doing at the time you're doing it and to be the best you can be and to make sure the station you're working for is the most listened station in your area, in your region. And now as we move on to what I've just said about heart nationally, yeah. I mean, I, I led Capital at one point to a 44 reach of London and the South and a 31 market share. I mean, that is yeah. bloody enormous. What that actually means is that every second person in London listens to Capital. 
and they all listened for a devil of a long time. Yeah. That that's what motivated me. I wanted I wanted everybody in, I want to get them listening to my stations. And in doing so, I want to produce the very best I can. But I don't really deal in um flip charts and cliches and all that sort of stuff. You know, yeah. I find that when I'm standing in front of people or talking to you now, it just comes because I'm I don't have to think about it. I don't have to say, is this what I believe? Of course it is. You know, I want to see people doing doing really well. Yeah, you know, I've had two of my sons go into radio. One of them is is still uh, practicing as, as a manager in Australia, and the other one was on Capital Extra mm-hmm. because he loved these rap music, urban music, and he was good at it. But he decided he didn't want to do that as his career. Wow, uh, because he felt some of what I felt, but not all of it. So, and but he was very attracted by the um, advertising side of the media industry. So he's now working for. Uh, Wonderman Thompson, one of Britain's yeah. biggest advertising things on on massive accounts, you know. Wow. So, I mean, yeah. When you see it when when you're when you're talking about uh, sort of keeping yourself in there and keeping keeping at the forefront and making your content the best, you mentioned earlier on about you know no qualifications in broadcasting, no background in it, no university or anything like that, and you look at the opportunity. Some people today say, well, the opportunity just isn't here anymore for, for a young person just to nip off on a fishing boat out to a, a, a pirate radio ship out in the off the coast of Scotland or off the coast of where, wherever it is. But in today's world, what can people do and what can young people be doing that want to get into a career like something even close to what you've had and other broadcasters have had? Well, it's different now. It's a different world, of course, because we had no social media then. So if I made a remark on air, nobody could tweet me and tell me I was right, I was wrong, or didn't I know that Paul McCartney first recorded this in 1965, not 1964. So, I mean, it is a very different world. It's a very different background, and people won't see it the way I see it. They'll actually be coming up the same path, mm-hmm. but but it's not easy to explain that it is the same path. If you want to be a YouTuber, a vlogger, you know, whatever it might be. And I think these days, um, everybody thinks that they can be a part of this in some way or other. That's I'm talking about the sort of general scenario now. I think for things like, you know, football commentary or or doing a radio show for four hours where you're talking nonstop about football and you have to know um, when you square up to people. I mean, I had to stand an interview, people like Alec Ferguson yeah. at his earliest. Jock Wallace managed Rangers. He had yeah. no time for me. What would I know? A kid from Kirkcaldy. Why would I be asking him questions about how Rangers were going to do? I once asked him, do you think you'll win on Wednesday night in Madrid? And he went, do you think I'd be going if I didn't? What sort of question <laughs> is that? You know? <laughs> Alec Ferguson. I mean, I've got more Ferguson stories than, than most people are prepared to tell. You wow. Know? Wow. Yeah. Uh, start when uh, well I I'll not tell them right now but there there are a lot you know but I think I think that that gives you backbone and steel but but that training is is still there it's still possible to get there are still lots of reporters turning up at events but I think the the managers themselves aren't the characters they once were because yeah. they know they're on camera and they know if they say the wrong thing or they make a mistake or they had to you know use the sort of um, talk that the uh, Scottish manager of the 60s and 70s would use. I don't think they'd last very long. No, you know? no. Square Eddie Turnbull to tell him he was wrong, you know? Yeah. That, would, that, would be, that would be fun. So, I mean, all these things have inculcated into me, you know, right right, right from the very start, you know? I mean, I, I remember the first game I went to, I think it was Ray Throwbridge versus Hearts in about 1956, you know? Yeah. I mean, did, did you practice? That's one I remember. Did you practice at home? Did you practice? I mean, there's a lot of chat people. I've heard a few people who work in radio and stuff like that. And they say, you know, they've, as kids, they were 
they were presenting, they were shouting, they were talking, they were just they were just talkers, and uh, it just seemed like they were destined for a career in, in an industry where they would be talking for a living, uh, and of course mix that in with a passion for music or a passion for sport or or a passion for politics and 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 news. Then that's that's where people end up. But was that something that you just were you a talker as a youngster? Were you somebody that? that I, like- I think so. I think so. I think if I, if I'm honest, yes. I think I, I watched the football um, commentators of the time and, and and I used to think, gosh, I'd love to do that. Yeah. And then I, I would sort of imagine myself as I was watching a game on TV or whatever, imagine myself commentating it. I mean, in my, in my early days, uh, there weren't many live matches on TV. I mean, yeah. suddenly strange games, Hearts playing Anderlecht in the European Cup would suddenly come up on the telly, you know, <laughs> like, like the late 50s. But most of the games weren't. So when I started doing European football matches on radio for Clyde in the 70s, I mean, lots of these Celtic and Rangers games were never on TV or they're on the following yeah. day or on at the weekend or whatever. Or there was maybe highlights at, at midnight, you know. In fact, I mean, Radio Clyde used to rebroadcast the commentaries of the Wednesday games overnight. So as anybody, and that was lots of people working night shift because actually you could hear the games back, you know? Wow. I yeah. fly back to Glasgow Airport with Celtic and Rangers and hear the commentary on in the customs hall. <laughs> 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 That's true. Wow. I mean, honestly, there's, there's been something in incredible, in, incredible things have occurred. I mean, I've been very lucky, very lucky. And to run a, a, a career paralleling music, during what I think we're going to look back on as the great pop music phase, which yeah. is probably, you know, it's probably last century more than this century. In this century, it's been a lot about what people are wearing, what and you know, clothing, scent, haircuts. Yeah. I think yeah. in the sixties, seventies, you know, the Beatles were in there. Yes, they they wore the suits and stuff, but the music, well, it's it's lasted the test of time. You know, yeah. if there's one memory that you can go back to for an interview, what would? Uh... Put you on a spot on the spot here. You've already mentioned people like Billy Connolly, Sir Alex Ferguson. You've mentioned some of the musicians that you've you've come across and worked with. But if I was to t- ask you to take you back, you know, in, to, in a time machine to a moment where you were sitting somewhere, going, "Wow, this is unbelievable." Um, I mean, I think the the sort of greatest concert thing I ever saw was the Bee Gees at Madison Square Garden in New York, where the the Night Fever thing had come out of New York, the Saturday Night Fever film. So the crowd were absolutely on side with everything, every song. These were the biggest and best songs in the world off a massive album. The youngest brother, Andy, um, had just had three number one hits in America in a row, and he came on and did them as well. You know, I've been invited by by Barry to go to the concert. His wife's Scottish, actually, an Edinburgh girl. Um, we went to Studio 54 afterwards. And I, I do think that probably is a night that I will find hard to beat. I mean, I also interviewed Michael Jackson, only one of three people in this country that did that. I knew Whitney Houston when she was young, went to Berlin. Was it Berlin? No, it was Munich, actually. To see her in a private hall, the Oberführer's Hall in, in Munich. Sat with her parents at a table and watched her perform. That was massive. I used to Go to the Mean Fiddler in Harleston here in London and uh, watch Paul McCartney rehearse for all his stuff. I mean, a lot of these things are are wow. very special moments. I put on big concerts. I was the first person to put on um, a show in Hyde Park since the Rolling Stones in 1969 when I put on Party in the Park for Capital in wow. 1998. First time Prince Charles, now King Charles, went out in public after uh, Diana died. Really? And can you imagine what that was? Wow. What they- what the crowd was like, and I had to sit right beside him 
in front of a hundred thousand people. Um, yeah, and I, actually, I've got a picture of that on my wall over there. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there are there are so many of these things. I mean, football memories, being you know at World Cups, being in in Mexico, and that sort of thing. Yeah. You know, and I mean, when we lost, when Scotland lost games. And friends would come around the hotel after and say, right, let's go out and get a few drinks, maybe go down a club. I, I, if Scotland had lost, I yeah. couldn't do it. Who used to come knock on my hotel room door? And I, I, I can't. I said, I don't know how you're all not guide. Well, we are guide, but we're going out. I, I don't yeah. feel like a beer, not really. It's felt it, yeah. That's incredible. I mean, from a communications point, then when you're mixing it with these people, when you're when you're meeting Michael Jackson, when you're speaking to Whitney Houston, when you're putting on a, a show like that, Hyde Park, what was it that, was there, did you just, was there always just being yourself? What was your sort of main key thing? Did you ever find yourself getting very nervous beforehand? Or how did you deal with that by meeting I, these people? I was nervous. I mean, because the build-up took ages, you know, uh, in, in terms of all the meetings we had to have to get everything absolutely right yeah. and, uh, you know, and, and make sure we had the correct artists and the correct running. I mean, I mean, it is it is a massive job because that we were putting on, and we still do it now for for Capital Now. Yeah. It's now called the Summertime Bowl. In those days, it was Party in the Park. There's one one coming up this June actually. And uh, yes, I was very nervous on the days. Very very nervous. Yeah. Very nervous because you know your stomach is churning. Anything goes wrong, you know. Yeah. But I, I was also very proud of the, the staff and, you know, the performances. And I remember what it rained and I think it was 1999 when Elton John was about to go on. He said to me, well, I'm not going on. I'll get electrocuted. I'm not playing on the electric piano, blah, blah, blah. And he says, See, I said, well, it's just about stopped. He said, it hasn't stopped, right? Yeah. I'm not going out while it's raining. So I had to turn around to Chris Town. I said, Chris, will you manage, manage to go out and do a sort of 15-minute monologue? And he did. He went out and he, he stood up and did really? a stand-up. He was to hundred thousand people. He was absolutely brilliant. You know? Wow, wow! Another introducing King Charles to Charlene Spiteri, and I was talking. Charlene just lives along the road from us here. Yeah. I was talking to her about it the other night. Do you remember when she was singing "Say What I Want" on stage, and I, Prince Charles' aide said, "We've got to keep moving, so we've got to meet some people." And he turned to me and said, "Well, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm not leaving. This act's brilliant." <laughs> really? Wow. Love Charlie. Love Charlie. Oh, fantastic! And fantastic. We had some fantastic artists on in those days. Yeah. You know, and we've kept that. We've kept those standards going. And my my colleagues who've taken over the heavy lifting from me. Yeah. Uh, no, they all now come to me and say, "God, this is hard to do this properly, isn't it?" Wow. But now you can now see them all because they're all now recorded for television because everything these days of course like what we're doing now um has a camera on it and you know yeah in the days that i i started out no cameras no nothing i mean what a shame actually yeah I bet. footage of those days would have been absolutely brilliant you know oh wow wow richard i mean I just to... I, hours I could actually talk when i st i don't really do it much but when i do do start talking i honestly because every day something happened. There was yeah. never a day in life where you sort of dawdled through, you know? I, says, I mean, honestly, I, I, I could listen for hours. <laughs> so it's, I mean, but, uh, I mean, on, on the, uh, just on the, on the final bit that we like to ask on this is, is how you say it is the, the podcast name and with regards to communication, what would you say for, for you three main fundamentals to communicating with an audience through, through radio broadcasting? The three basic fundamentals. Well, 
you know, I think when you're on the air, you want to remember to have the highest quality of broadcasting that you can achieve. Yeah. You know, you you want to be as focused on your subjects, your topics, whatever whatever it might be. But you also want to relax into it and enjoy it as well. And with any luck, it'll come naturally. We'll all be nervous in the first few links. I mean, can you imagine when I was like on the pirate ship in the first few days? It was very up and down, you know. Then suddenly go, going onto Radio One as well. That you know, wow. Yeah, you know, but but I I did know what I had to do, and that was you know bring out the best of me. Always to respect the audience, you know, give them the best that, that you can give of you. And I think if you give it out you get it back, yeah. you know? I mean, I was lucky enough to be Sony Broadcaster of the Year in the first year that they had the awards ceremony. So I think that was some reward for just a certain level of honesty about the broadcasting, you know? Right. I was also the last person ever to win a Sony Award before it ended. All right. So I won the gold award for my services to radio um, in the last Sony Radio Awards, you know, a festival that's, I think, it's kind of sadly missed now, but... Obviously, it's very expensive to put on a dinner for a thousand people of course. in the Grosvenor House Hotel yeah. on Park Lane. Yeah, I mean, like I say earlier, Richard, I, I could listen to these all night. I mean, you, you teased us with uh, stories of um, of Alex Ferguson. You've teased us with uh, stories of uh, Billy Connolly, and of course, the, the stories that you've given us just absolutely fantastic. And for the career that you've had, it's it's been a a, a real pleasure to. To listen to this and especially with the the connection from uh you know a, a lad ficker coddy is exactly you know and like you say going all the way back to 1966 and looking where we where, what we're being talking about now it really is fascinating to hear your story yeah well the first 18 years were in uh lady helen street and milton road kirkcaldy so wow pretty central kirkcaldy boy yeah oh well thank you very Kirkcody much high school pupil Kirkcaldy High School, yeah, there you go. I have to laugh when I see that uh, I'm one of the high school pupils that's best remembered, but I don't think it could be for academic performance. <laughs> and some of the people who were in, in that school with me would... Uh, uh, Said, my God, how did you manage that? You know? <laughs> well, I mean, that's most people had me marked down for a lifetime on the door, you know. Well, I mean, it's an interesting theme, but you're not the first person, in fact, you're not even the second person I've interviewed on this who've openly said that you know, school wasn't a priority for them, but yet they've managed to go on to, to bigger and better things. And it, it does show that there is a trend in that where people that come through it maybe don't enjoy education at the time but when you're in school you only, you think to yourself you it's the only thing you've got to be good at to, to get on in life but actually there's plenty of Absolutely. people listen I, I've subsequently told my kids to get their heads down and and they've all gone to 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 university mm -hmm. you know? yeah the youngest boy he, he went to um, Edinburgh another two both went to Sheffield because they have the the journalism courses up yeah. there as well um but yeah, you're right. I, I, that is something I do realize that you might not, you might not know what your talent is, or might think not think that that would be a job uh, in in your earliest days. But you know, if you if you carry on and let yourself be guided by your gut feeling, you probably get quite a long way. Yeah, a lot to be said for that. That's I mean, look at Alec Ferguson. He got he got bumped out of a couple of football clubs before he really got going. His career got going yeah. as a player himself. The Rangers fans never fancied him. Yeah, yeah. Sacked at St Mirren. Uh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, Jock Sweeney was just an average club player, wasn't he? Yeah, 
That's right. Yeah, that's it's when you look through it, there's there's plenty of examples of that, and um, and I think that's definitely been a theme that I've noticed through the people that we've interviewed for this uh, for this podcast as well. So thank you very much, Richard. It's been it's been a joyous occasion to listen to you. It's been I've really really enjoyed that. It's been fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you, Grim. Thank you. Cheers. That's very kind of you. Thank you.